Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. As we address the topic, confusion at Corinth, biblical interpretation, gender, and the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians eleven two. 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head, because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. That is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman, For just as woman came through man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, We have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, as I read that text, you probably thought to yourself, wow, what a weird choice of a text for a chapel sermon. Uh, When I mentioned in class the other day that this was going to be the text for my sermon, the students actually laughed out loud. I think they thought I was joking. But I chose this text for a very important reason. Uh, make a confession. Uh, Not always, but often when I've had the opportunity to preach in chapel, I have chosen what an older generation of preachers referred to as a sugar stick. Now, that's a reference to a sermon that you've had the opportunity to preach a few times and you've honed and refined, and it's typically a sermon based on a text that we find most inspiring or deeply convicting. But preaching such messages can give a very wrong impression of the preacher's task. Because the fact is that the faithful pastor who is committed to expositional preaching doesn't have the luxury of only preaching the easy texts that are very easy to understand and that will give everyone in our audience warm fuzzies that will thrill the souls of the congregants. 
The pastor has to preach the hard text, too, the texts that are complicated and difficult to understand, and the passages that, frankly, are going to offend many of the hearers. Texts like that test the preacher's conviction that all Scripture really is God-breathed and is profitable. 1 Corinthians 11, I think, is an example of a difficult text. It's difficult to interpret as is demonstrated by the myriad of views that you'll find reflected in the commentaries, and it's difficult to preach because, as you well know, its truths are certain to offend many. But preaching such text is absolutely necessary. Although the New Testament speaks of giving the milk of the Word to immature believers and the meat of the Word to more mature believers, it never recommends a steady diet of spiritual sugar for anybody. At the risk of being very corny, the old adage is true, sugar promotes tooth decay and sugar sticks promote truth decay. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a text that's often ignored in preaching because we don't really like what we think it says. In many Bible translations, women are clearly commanded to wear hair veils in worship. An example among many would be the message that says, quote, women must wear head coverings in worship while the men take their hats off. But even if our specific Bible translation refers to a woman wearing a hair veil in worship, even if it doesn't, most English readers are going to assume that that's what the text is about based on our familiarity with older translations. But the fact is that the Greek text says that the woman should have kata kephales ekon in Greek, which literally means something hanging down the head. It's interesting that Paul's construction does not explicitly refer to some garment or article of clothing. As a matter of fact, the only time in this passage that he explicitly refers to a head covering is in verse 15, where he says that God has given the woman long hair in place of or instead of a head covering. And when that statement is combined with the numerous references to hair length and hair shortness in verse 5, verse 6, verse 14, verse 15, I'm convinced that the issue here is really the length of men's hair versus the length of women's hair. If you're using the NIV, you'll find that view clearly expressed in the marginal reading of the text. Paul's point is that men should not have long hair in worship and women should not have short hair in worship. They should have hairstyles that are appropriate for their gender. Now, notice that when Paul addresses this, he says not only what women are to do, but also what men are to do. In fact, he starts with the men. In other words, although we often assume that the women in Corinth are adopting masculine hairstyles, it's also very possible that the men in Corinth have chosen to adopt very feminine hairstyles. 
And that leads to the question, what in the world is going on in the church of first century Corinth? And what lessons can the 21st century church possibly learn from Paul's response? Lesson number one, don't allow your background and experience to determine your interpretation of Scripture. Be careful of biblical interpretation with an agenda. I'm convinced that most of the errors in both belief and practice that we find in the church of Corinth are a product of a bad hermeneutic resulting from syncretism. What I mean by that is that the Corinthians have blended together elements of the Christian faith with elements of their pagan background. And in the process, they have confused everything. We know from 1st and 2nd Corinthians that some of the members of the church are still attending idol feast in the pagan temples of Corinth. We know that they have transformed the Lord's Supper into a drunken and gluttonous feast like that celebrated in the pagan temples of their past. We know that they have confused prophecy and tongues as ecstatic utterances like those exercised in the pagan temples and the worship of the idol gods. And it appears also that their confusion of the genders is a byproduct of misinterpreting the Christian faith against their pagan background. To be more specific, one of the most prominent religions in first century Corinth was the worship of Dionysius, the god of wine. In Greek mythology, Dionysius was the offspring that resulted from Zeus's sexual relationship with Semele, a human female. It was an adulterous relationship that angered Zeus's wife, Hera, and she was determined to kill Dionysius, the byproduct of this adulterous union. For his own protection, those who raised Dionysius decided to disguise this male god as a female. And so, Dionysius dressed as a woman. He kept long hair like a woman. He doused himself with perfume like a woman. He walked with a feminine gait, and he imitated the female voice when he spoke. All of this is described in vivid detail in ancient writers like Euripides and Seneca. And the worshipers of Dionysius decided to describe him as androgynous, sometimes even bisexual, both male and female, anatomically and in his preferences. They would celebrate Dionysius's gender confusion by practicing their own gender role reversal. And so, in the worship of Dionysius, and I might add not only Dionysius, but Demeter and Sybil and Artemis and Diana, the worshipers would reverse the gender roles so that the men would wear feminine dress and long flowing locks and feminine jewelry, and the women would wear short masculine hairstyles and masculine garments. Archaeologists from Corinth have actually unearthed vases that have paintings depicting the worship of Dionysius, 
in which some of the female workers, worshipers go to shocking extremes to make themselves fully and anatomically male. Men masquerading as women, women masquerading as men. So you can imagine what happens when Paul comes to Corinth and he preaches, as he said in Galatians 3.28, there is no male or female in Christ. Oh, I know what that means. We've been practicing that for centuries in the temple of Dionysius. Now, in context, Galatians 3.28 means that both men and women believers are the seed of Abraham and equal heirs of the Abrahamic promise. It certainly does not mean that we're to seek to undo all of the distinctions between men and women that were part of God's creation ordinance. And yet the Corinthians apparently latch on to this mantra, no male or female, and they use that to justify the incorporation of pagan practices into the Christian church by interpreting Christian truths in light of their own pagan background, they perverted and distorted the Christian faith. And that is almost always the inevitable result of using our own past experience as the primary guide in biblical interpretation. And this applies to us. The approach to interpreting the Bible that we see modeled at Corinth is becoming increasingly popular even in biblical scholarship. Now, there are many biblical scholars who are championing what has been labeled consciously contextual theology or even, quote, autobiographical criticism. And what is meant by that is that the goal in biblical interpretation is not to expound what the original author intended to communicate to the original reader, but instead to intentionally and unapologetically interpret the biblical text based on my biases, my presuppositions, and my background. Case in point, I recently reviewed a scholarly monograph for an academic journal that attempted what they described as a post-colonial and tribal reading of Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. Speaking of Jesus' conception by the Virgin, the author wrote, quote, The tribal reader may read it in light of tribal legends about extraordinary conceptions and birth, like that of the ancestral mother goddess who conceives when a mystery cloud gathers over her and she gives birth to the tiger, representing the world of animals, the spirit, representing the world of spiritual beings, and the man representing the world of humanity. I think it's obvious to everyone in the room that this tribal reading is a terrible distortion of the biblical accounts of Jesus' birth. But the fact is, this is not some anomaly. We find it everywhere. Just about every group has their own approach to biblical interpretation designed to arrive at their own predetermined conclusions. In extreme forms, this method of biblical interpretation has produced many different versions of Jesus. The white Aryan Jesus of Nazi Germany, 
and unfortunately some Southern evangelical art. The Black Jesus of Malcolm X and Albert Cleage, the feminist goddess-worshiping Jesus of Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, the gay Jesus of Robert Goss and Morton Smith, and we could keep on going. But what's lost in the mix is the biblical Jesus, the historical Jesus. And these approaches, the goal is not to determine what the original author meant to communicate to the original reader, but instead, all too often, to make Scripture say what I want it to say. And in the process, Scripture is stripped of its authority to serve as an indictment or corrective to my preferences and to my culture. And it becomes little more than propaganda to justify my preferences and my culture. So we learn from Paul's reaction to the Corinthians that we must not allow our backgrounds and experiences to determine our interpretation of the Word of God. Lesson two, preserve and celebrate the distinction between men and women. Paul argues that the Corinthian desire to abolish the distinction between the sexes is misguided. He addresses this in verse 3, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Headship here refers to authority. And Paul explains why the man is the head of the woman here, verse 8, for man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that God created Eve to be a companion and helper to Adam. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Twice, Genesis 2 describes Eve as created to be Adam's helper. This implies that man is to serve as the primary leader in the family and in the family of God, the Christian church. But this, Paul hastens to say, in no way implies the woman's inferiority. It in no way indicates that she is unimportant or inessential because the helper can be fully equal to the head. Paul illustrates this in two ways. First of all, in verse 3, he reminds us that God, the Father, is the head of Christ. Any good Trinitarian knows that God the Son is co-equal with God the Father. And Paul's point is, the fact that the Father is the head of Christ in no way implies that the Father is superior to the Son or that the Son is inferior to the Father. By extension, his point is, the mere fact that the man is head and the woman is helper in no way implies the husband's superiority to the wife or the wife's inferiority to the husband. Paul offers a second argument. 
He demonstrates the equality of man and woman by the interdependence of man and woman. Verse 10, he says, In the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. His point is, she needs him, and he needs her. The fact is, there simply would be no men without women, and there would be no women without men. This interdependence shows that neither is superior to the other or inferior to the other, despite their God-ordained differences. Uh, you know well that the tendency in our contemporary culture is to dismiss what Paul says about the distinct roles of men and women as byproducts of some kind of patriarchal society, but that won't do. Because notice that Paul grounds his teaching about these distinct roles in the design of humanity in creation. The very creation ordinance of God. That is cross-cultural, and that implies that the roles described here are abiding and perpetual roles. I think it's very important that we be reminded of the God-ordained distinction between men and women because the desire to eliminate the distinction between the sexes is threatening the church today. You don't have to look very far at all before you'll find broken churches in which men have failed to pursue the godly character, the knowledge of the Scriptures, the spiritual maturity, and the courage to lead the spiritual family or to find women who have defied the authority of scriptures by seeking the role of elder, contrary to 1 Timothy 3, or insisting on teaching the scripture to the assembled body, including both men and women, in corporate worship, contrary to 1 Timothy 2. And oddly, some have actually appealed to 1 Corinthians 11 to justify these departures. Of course, they say. Women can preach to men in the corporate worship service because, after all, the issue in 1 Corinthians 11 is whether or not it's proper for women to pray or prophesy in corporate worship without their head covered. The question is not whether they are qualified to pray or prophesy. Thus, women can preach to men in the corporate worship service Case closed. Well, not so fast. This argument is based on some faulty assumptions. For example, it confuses prophecy with the teaching of the Holy Scriptures, when these, in fact, are clearly distinct. We know that they're distinct because here Paul does entertain the possibility of a woman prophesying before the assembled congregation in corporate worship, and yet in 1 Timothy 2.12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over the man. Paul's not contradicting himself. He's talking about two different things. Prophecy and preaching or teaching the Holy Scriptures are different acts. Second, we know that prophecy is to be distinguished from teaching because in 1 Corinthians 14, 
6, Paul lists spiritual gifts given to the body, and he distinguishes these two in the list. And then 3, we know that they are distinct because Paul describes prophecy as unplanned, unprepared, spirit-prompted speech. In 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 30, he has a scenario where a prophet is sitting in the congregation, participating in worship. God grants a revelation to the prophet. He comes forward to share the prophecy. That's very different from carefully handling the word of truth, isn't it? which involves an enormous amount of study and preparation. Obviously, what's being described there is not the teaching of the Word. And furthermore, Paul says that these prophets are subject to the authority of a group of prophets who are called upon to evaluate everything that the prophet says. And if they determine that what he is uttering is not a message from God, they have the authority to command him to sit down and be silent. You don't find a description of that kind of thing whenever you read about the teaching ministry of the elder. Prophecy and teaching are distinct. Once we understand what 1 Corinthians 11 is actually teaching about the roles of men and women in corporate worship, it should be clear that it is fully appropriate for Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary to have all of its faculty sign the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which says unashamedly in Article 4, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. And it's also fully appropriate for us to maintain our historic practice as Southern Baptist of reserving the teaching ministry of the corporate body, especially on the Lord's Day, to qualified male spiritual leaders, this is thoroughly biblical. But not only is a confusion about the distinction between the genders threatening our churches, it is threatening our families. All around us, we see broken families in which passive husbands have forfeited their responsibility to lead, and we see dominating wives that have usurped that role. Unsatisfied with the biblical model of head and helper, we have decided that it would be far better if marriages were 50-50 partnerships in which both husband and wife have absolutely equal decision-making authority. Instead of head and helper, we now have two heads. You may not know that two-headed creatures actually appear in nature pretty frequently. But most of us in the room have never seen one except maybe in a photograph. Do you know why? because two-headed creatures never survive for very long. Their constant competition, their constant struggle leads to self-destruction. And in my experience in pastoral counseling, two-headed marriages never thrive and seldom survive either. 
If our marriages are going to manifest and model Christ's relationship to his church, it is essential that they be properly ordered head and helper as the Old and New Testament clearly describe. And not only is this confusion between the genders threatening our churches and threatening our families, you, I'm sure, know that it is shockingly displayed all around us in our culture. When the distinction between the sexes is abandoned, when men have sexual relationships with men and women have sexual relationships with women, when individuals adopt the style and fashion of the opposite gender, just like they were doing in the church of Corinth. And even when individuals attempt to change their gender from the one defined by the anatomy with which they were born. The point that I'm making is the principles that Paul lays down for us here have application to issues such as homosexuality, transvestism, and transgenderism. For the sake of time, let's just look at the last two examples. Transvestism began to move into the mainstream of our culture in 1994 when the drag queen RuPaul became a spokesperson for a very popular cosmetics company, soon began to host his own radio talk show. Fast forward now 25 years later, and Drag Queen Story Hour is now being held in public schools and recreation centers all across the United States, normalizing cross-dressing for preschoolers. Just last month, two famous drag queens made history by being the first to appear in drag during a Super Bowl commercial. This is all around us and is being increasingly accepted in our decadent society. Transgenderism is increasingly approved by our culture as well. 2014, Amazon launched the comedy drama Transparent, in which Father Mort transitions into Mother Mara. Then in 2015, the gold medalist Olympic decathlete Bruce Jenner announced that he was transitioning into a female and legally changing his name from Bruce to Caitlin. The transition was wildly applauded by our society. And that very year, Glamour magazine named Jenner one of the 25 Glamour Women of the Year. Soon afterwards, Jenner had a documentary television series called I Am Kate, and then in January 2017 underwent sex reassignment surgery. That was so wildly applauded that now everybody wants to get in on the act, and there are numerous celebrity entertainers and famous athletes who are insisting that they are going to raise their children using what they call a genderless approach. If you want to know how widely that is accepted by our culture, then just announce on social media that you're about to have a gender reveal party for the child that you're expecting and see what kind of backlash you experience. There will be people who are outraged that you would have the audacity to assume that a boy is a boy or a girl is a girl simply because of the anatomy 
that they are born with. And here's my point. There are enormous pressures on the Christian church today to abandon the biblical teaching about the distinctions between male and female. And in the face of these challenges, we must boldly and unhesitatingly proclaim the truths of texts like 1 Corinthians 11, that God from creation has ordained a distinction between male and female that must be preserved. As I would fully affirm statements in the Nashville statement like, we affirm that the differences between male and female reproductive structures are integral to God's design for self-conception as male and female. And we affirm that it is sinful to approve of homosexual immorality or transgenderism and that such constitutes such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faith and witness. So lesson one, we don't interpret Scripture in light of our own background as if our experience were the primary factor. Lesson two, we preserve and maintain the distinction that God has ordained between male and female. And finally, lesson three, the most important one of all, be zealous for the glory of God in Christian worship. It's no accident that the two arguments that Paul uses in addressing the situation in Corinth have huge repercussions for our Christian view of worship. Paul argues about the distinction between the treatment of the physical head in worship based on a connection with a metaphorical head symbolized by the physical one. We see the key to understanding this in verse 3. Paul says, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman. And then he goes on to discuss whether or not one's physical head should be covered in worship. Here's what he's arguing. He is arguing that the heads of our bodies symbolize a spiritual head or metaphorical head, and that determines whether or not the head should be covered or not. His argument is the head of the woman represents her metaphorical head, the man. Therefore, it should be covered in worship because man should be covered in worship to show that he is not the focal point. Worship is not about him. But the head of the man, which represents his spiritual head, Christ, should be uncovered in worship. Because Christ should always be on display in our worship. He should never be hidden. He must never be covered. He is to be the centerpiece, the focal point. He should be front and center. Our worship should be about Him. The spotlight should be cast on Him and Him only. Worship is to be Christocentric, not anthropocentric. And Paul makes a very similar argument in verse 10. He argues that one of the reasons that the woman should cover her head with her long hair in worship is because of the angels. 
I'm convinced that this is an appeal to angelic conduct in worship as described in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his garment fills the entire temple. And he's surrounded by cherubim who have six wings. With two they fly, with two they cover their feet, and with two they cover their face. Because in the presence of God, it is not they who deserve to be seen, but him only. And the seraphim are transfixed and captivated by the holiness and glory and majesty of God. And they continually shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's worship. I listened to a radio interview this last week of a woman who had gone to a church when she was traveling out of town and was sickened by what she experienced. She said, I tried and I tried to worship, but I couldn't because the people sitting in front of me kept interrupting my train of thought by taking selfies. She said, they seemed to be more like tourists than worshipers. Well, Isaiah is clear. The seraphim that surround the heavenly throne aren't taking selfies up there. They recognize that worship is not about putting ourselves on display. It's about hiding ourselves and focusing exclusively on Him. Worship is about the glory of God. And that's one of the reasons that Paul is so alarmed by what's going on in the church of Corinth. The people, and women in particular it appears, have seized worship as an opportunity to flaunt their status, to flaunt their liberation. And Paul is saying that is not what worship is about. You mustn't make it about you. It is about him. And the question we have to wrestle with is the glory of Christ on display in our worship or has our so-called worship devolved into idolatry where it's really all about self-exaltation. And in a sense, I think, we have now come full circle and we're right back where we started. What do I mean? I mean, if worship is about our self-exaltation, then we are not going to handle the hard truths of Scripture when we stand behind the pulpit. Because if worship is about me, my goal is going to be to please my audience, whatever it takes. I'll preach whatever invites the applause. My words will be tweetable quotes that get as many likes as possible. My concern won't be to make followers of Jesus, but to add to the followers on my own social media account. But we are, if we are zealous for the glory of God rather than our own glory, None of that will matter. And we will be willing to preach the hard truths of Scripture, and when opposition mounts, we will say, as Paul did in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, hold on, we speak 
not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. We have never used flattering speech, as you know, or had selfish motives. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, not from you or anyone else. When our worship is about the exaltation of Christ alone, then we can say, as Paul said in Galatians 1.10, am I striving to please people? No. If I were still striving to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Every one of us faces a decision that will make all the difference in the world about how we will conduct our pulpit ministries. It's a choice between whether we will seek to be servants or we will seek to be celebrities. Whether we will be shepherds or whether we will be hirelings. Paul had made his stand. And it's clear that his concern when he preaches and teaches is the heavenly audience, not the human audience. And so he's willing to say whatever God compels him to say through the authority of the Scriptures. He's not driven by pursuit for the world's applause. His only goal is to stand before his master who will evaluate every aspect of his ministry and hear the words of commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And I pray that that will be your longing too. And that in your faithfulness to Christ your head, you will be willing to preach even the hard text of Scripture. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that we would be faithful workers who correctly handle the word of truth, never twisting it and distorting it according to our own preferences and background. We pray that you will help us to maintain the distinction that you ordained from creation itself between men and women, and that we would teach it courageously and unashamedly, despite all the pressures of this day, for the good of your church, our families, and this culture. And we pray above all, Lord, that we would recognize Christ alone as the head of the church. And in submission to his absolute authority, that we would seek never to exalt ourselves in worship, but him and him only. And in hiding ourselves and exalting him, that we would be willing to preach and teach even the hard truths of Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.